Hi, I'm Tracy Camilleri. Welcome to this episode in our Ghost Light series of podcasts, where we explore how leaders can build human-shaped organizations by learning from the humanities, that repository of all that's most human. Each time we talk to guests who consider leadership from an angle rather than head-on, looking through the lens of philosophy, literature, art, history, psychology, the new insights, new language, and new approaches. In this episode, I'm talking to Professor Robin Dunbar, anthropologist and evolutionary psychologist. Robin's an emeritus professor from Oxford University who's most famous for his Dunbar number, along with his many years of research into human behavior. Hi, Robin. It's great to have you on our first podcast. A pleasure. We've been followers of your research in evolutionary psychology for many years, and we've often had conversations about how our work with leaders in the fraught business of leading human beings overlaps with what you've discovered um, in many years through your research into human behavior. What I'd love to do in this podcast is to focus on the current crisis that we're living through. I mean, all of us are here isolated in our homes, working remotely. You've written about friendship, you've written about loneliness. And my first question to you is, what can leaders do to help to maintain a sense of connection with the people who work for them? Well, in the current climate, probably turns out to be the most important question you can ask, I think. This is partly because of the way our relationships are kind of engineered. They depend on each of us investing quite a lot of time in the people that not only we count as friends, but also the people we work with. So as to establish these kind of relationships that are what really makes the social world and the business world go round. But those relationships are really terribly dependent on how much time you actually invest in each relationship. So if you break off and can't meet up or communicate in some way, what tends to happen is the relationship deteriorates extremely quickly and literally within a matter of a couple of months, it will have dropped down perceptibly in the sort of sense of commitment that uh, the two people concerned have. So I think the biggest risk for any organization that's now working remotely is that their staff members become disengaged from each other and disengaged from the project that the organization exists to do, as it were. They, they won't feel part of the organization in quite the same way as they would have felt if they'd been coming in every day and talking to people casually and uh, for business purposes and having lunch together or coffee together or whatever. That's the biggest risk by a long way, I think. And of course, we don't know how long this thing is going to last. And so we are, by necessity, dependent on video on voice calls and so on. Can leaders be smart about how they're using these tools? The answer is yes. I mean, any social interaction with anybody is a kind of skill. And obviously, you know, some people are better at it than others. But, you know, the critical problem, I think, that we're likely to encounter in this kind of remote environment really arises from the medium that we use to uh, interact with people who are distributed at distances. Certainly one of the projects we did a couple of years ago looked at how satisfying, how content, happy people were with the interaction they had with their five best friends via different 
media during the normal course of the day. So if they met them face to face, if they Skyped with them, if they uh, phoned them, if they talked to them through some uh, text-based medium. And what came out of that loud and clear was the fact that Skype and face-to-face were just head and shoulders more satisfying in terms of maintaining the relationship, as it were, and giving a sense of engagement than any of the other possibilities. The text-based media were particularly, because they're slow, I think is the problem. Uh, You know, your answer comes in the following day and you can't remember what your question was. There's a disconnect in there. The telephone kind of works, but what you're missing with the telephone is an awful lot of visual cues which allow us to interpret exactly what it is that the speaker is trying to say. And also, I think the end of the day, the video component of something like Skype or Zoom becomes important because you have this sense of being in the room together. It's it's what's called co-presence by social psychologists. It's actually you feel as though you're sitting across the table from someone. And what you're doing then is picking up cues constantly about the thought processes going on in the speaker. And, And what that does Um, I suppose in crude terms, it allows you to see whether your joke that you're about to tell is actually getting through or not. You can see the smile breaking on their face before you finish the punchline. And what that does is speed up enormously the flow of the conversation. I think that sort of idea of musical flow, as it were, and keeping the conversation integrated and going really is fundamental to this whole process. And so nothing really does that better than the visual component. And without that visual component, everything gets very clunky and you're not quite sure when somebody says something online or or even down the telephone, exactly what it is that they meant. Were they being sort of ironic or were they being encouraging? And it's those kind of cues you get from face-to-face interactions. And that is what we have evolved really to work in terms of is this kind of visual world. I have rather enjoyed actually that sense of being in people's living rooms or their kitchens and seeing what they've got on the wall. And there is actually a sense of almost accelerated intimacy and relationship that you get through meeting your work colleagues in their own homes. I love that concept of musical flow. And if I could just build on that, because I mean, you will have as well as me in this last month, you know, kind of large online meetings or discussions. And there's a kind of staccato delay. There's a sense of lack of certainty about when to interrupt or when to ask a question. And you sometimes hang up without much satisfaction. And I know you've done some research on just the kind of pace and flow of human interaction. Can we be better as facilitators or chairs of these kinds of meetings, do you think? I think the position of the chair or facilitator, if you like, becomes really crucial in these kind of online Skype or Zoom type environment. And this is because partly a consequence of the fact that there is a natural limit on the size of a conversation that we can handle. And that partly reflects our ability to engage with other people, with other people's minds. So to do this kind of processing in the background of what exactly do their words mean and what is it they're trying to tell us and perhaps aren't being very articulate about. That limit in real life is 
actually very small. It's about four people. It's difficult for more than four people to be engaged in a conversation. And if the fifth person joins, I mean, literally within 15 seconds, that will be two separate conversations in the normal run of things. You just see that happening if you if you watch it in a, a pub or if we can ever go to pubs again. You see it happening before your very eyes. Of course, what happens in a kind of boardroom environment is the chair manages the contributions by various members and clearly makes sure that everybody who wants to say something can. And what they're working on very often intuitively, if not explicitly, is the kind of signals they're getting for people when they want to try and add to something, even if they don't actually attempt to interrupt, you know, their facial signals and raising of a hand or whatever it may be to signal that they want to contribute. Good chair is monitoring that all the time and allowing people who might otherwise sit in the background to actually get their say. But I think that just becomes much more difficult in a, a Zoom environment because you've got little pictures of people scattered across your screen and it's much more difficult to see them all at one go in the way you can round a boardroom table. So I think it just requires a little bit more sensitivity and awareness of who is getting left out? Because that has always been the biggest problem that was recognized very, very early on when the technology for virtual conferencing was being developed was that it's very easy for, and particularly when it's voice only, for four or five people to dominate the conversation and everybody else to get sort of excluded and then they fade into the background and then they start looking at their emails on their iPhones or whatever instead of paying attention to the meeting as it's progressing. It's being very sensitive to those kind of dynamics that's the key to success, I think. Yeah, and not only in the virtual world, I'd say. That point that you make about the importance of seeing one another's faces, and you know, we can still do that virtually, makes me think about our lives have been spent really designing very experiential face-to-face -face learning and the importance of that, of sharing experience. And I wanted to ask you about the research that you've done about the importance of doing things like eating lunch together or singing together and what effect that has on building and solidifying relationship. We are an incredibly social species. That's the bottom line. But these relationships, which we develop just in terms of individual friendships, but equally with sort of groups of friends or groups of colleagues, don't sort of appear out of nowhere by magic, just by virtue of the fact that you turn up at a meeting and occasionally say something that's very focused and business related. The workplace is a social environment. After all, we spend more of our working week time in the office than we do at home or with our friends you know, sort of down the pub or wherever you go with your friends to relax. You know, it's our major social environment. And therefore, we are kind of building natural friendships and relationships in the workplace in the way we would normally do in our leisure environments or home environments with our friends and family. And those relationships really hinge around triggering the endorphin system in the brain. The endorphin system is part of the pain control system. It kind of produces a sense of warmth and relaxation and contentedness and with the people that you're doing whatever activity this is. In primates, that's triggered by a social grooming. We still do an inordinate amount of physical touch that is our version of social grooming. But in addition, what seems to have happened over 
evolutionary time has been we found other ways to trigger this system virtually, I without having to actually physically touch somebody. And that's involved particularly things like laughter, singing and dancing, storytelling, eating and drinking together in small groups. All of these turn out to trigger the endorphin system and are therefore very important in creating a sense of positivity, if you like, between individuals and collectively across a community. And so they're there. They're actually bubbling away underneath the surface in your work environment, even though you kind of don't notice it, as it were. And they play a very important role in facilitating the flow of the work process and and how efficiently and quickly things get done, probably much more than most people actually realize. So the problem here in the virtual world that we now live in in this context is probably how to trigger those same mechanisms effectively when you're setting up a virtual meeting of a work group. And my guess is probably, I mean, singing is very good for this, I have to say. (laughs) I'm actually not sure how well that works online in a virtual environment. I have heard of people doing it, but I suspect most of us would feel a bit embarrassed uh, about singing alone in our room, even if we're singing along with people in a Zoom meeting, as type meeting as it were. Somehow, you know, if we do that actually together in a room, we feel that our rather bad singing voice is covered by everybody else's, whereas it's, you know, exposed (laughs) for all to hear in a virtual environment. So I discount that. But I think the two that make practical sense, one is engineering a lot of laughter. We use laughter constantly in our conversations with each other. and, And laughter seems to be extremely good at engineering a sense of belonging to a group or to a community and enhancing the the relationships of the people involved in the way they make the whatever the work purpose of of the organization is get done you know sort of whereas if you're dealing with poor old mr spock from star trek day in day out at work you know who never smiles never laughs never tells a joke it makes it very very hard so somehow engineering that, I mean, the skills of a stand-up is what, what's needed here, I think. And some people are better at that than others. You know, we have to kind of recognize that. But I think, you know, it's, it's no bad thing to, to have a, an office joker who can lighten the, the environment and get people laughing a little bit. But the other is clearly kind of having coffee together because that's easy to arrange. And if there's some food involved, uh, lunch together virtually, I think that probably does work. Certainly a lot of people have been trying it. And from what I've heard, you know, it does seem to work, at least at the family level, it tends to be that. Why not let's do it in the, in the business environment too? Yeah, I was going to say, we, we've been talking to people over the last month who are kind of meeting their teams every morning over a coffee. And I think it does something interesting to time as well. You're not so rushed. You talk without agenda. You're eating and drinking together. And yeah, again, Nida's saying that they're spending a lot of time just checking in, kind of being, listening to what's going on, kind of doing virtual thumbs up to their teams. And I think that connects with what you're saying about just the need for the endorphins to be released, to, to have a sense that you're you're not totally alone. And, and we see it as well, don't we, with all everyone having to come out of their houses and, and clap together for the NHS or these extraordinary Italian singers from their balconies. There's such a human need to experience things to, together. 
along the lines that you say. But I mean, you say we need we need jokers, but it is an anxious time, and you know, people are feeling worried. They're worried for their jobs. They're not sure, you know, about the structure that lies ahead. I mean, what have you learned as well about how human beings process fear and how they behave in in fearful situations? Oh, I think any change of environment creates stresses for us. I mean, because we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the whole merit of your everyday world, whether it's the social world or your workplace world, is that it involves the same people. You know how it works. You don't have to sort of sit there worrying before you turn up. You know who you should talk to and what you should say because you know everybody on a personal level. You know you can gather around the photocopy machine or the water cooler or whatever it is and, and have a bit of a chat at a, at a more social level and engage with them. And that whole process becomes terribly important in facilitating the level of relaxation that you have in that kind of environment. So I think in the present context, anything that reduces those anxieties and stress levels has to be good because it conversely will build strength of the relationships and and this is exactly what the endorphin system does it relaxes you it gives you this very slight opiate high which makes you feel that all's well with the world so you know it turns out endorphins as painkillers are 30 times more powerful than morphine weight for weight. So, you know, you just need a, a tiny bit of trigger of, of endorphins, you know, something to make you laugh, and suddenly the world is brighter for you. I mean, it really is an almost instantaneous effect. This really goes back to the same thing. It's not only about do you benefit by maintaining, keeping the relationships between people going across the office space, but also everybody feels themselves, feels much more contented and relaxed about the situation and can sort of sit back and enjoy it a bit more because they're getting this endorphin hit. We kind of, I think we underestimate the effect of that and the effect of the importance of laughter all the time, particularly in a kind of formal type of social space like, you know, the, the office or the shop floor, as it were, because that doesn't look like it's important to the production of whatever the activity that the business is engaged in. And the answer is, if your workforce isn't laughing, they're probably not going to be working very hard. <laughs> I mean, Robin, now, just as you were speaking, looking at it though through another lens, I mean, is there potentially something positive that may emerge when we get through this wretched time? Because we've all shared a grim experience together. I mean, there are all kinds of analogies to, you know, this is like the Second World War and so on. You know, sharing a grim experience, allowing us to think about our priorities, about what matters and sort of surviving it together. Will that bind us more strongly than we were before? Paradoxically, I actually think fear does work quite well in these contexts, but it has to be shared fear, if you like, rather than sort of individual fear for the future. But if it's collective fear of how to deal with this unknown situation. This can be very binding. It is the case that you actually learn uh, much faster under conditions of high emotional arousal, like fear, for example, than you do if you're just feeling neutral. And, you know, this is exactly why, you know, sort of in the military, you know, after people have been under very heavy firefights in the army, for example, and they're out on the battlefield, 
there's nothing like that to bond a unit of guys into very functional, self-protective, coordinated group. And that's what a lot of military training is all about, sort of making people do these uh, long, arduous treks through through the mountains or live round fire practice you know, on a battlefield. This fear component just creates an instant bond between people. But I think sort of just to put that then in the context of current situation and the, and the future prospects, what we're doing, if you like, is we're experimenting on a very big scale with what used to be called home, home working, this sort of dispersed office. You know, this is, has lots of advantages. But I think the big problem with it, which needs to be very carefully handled, is the fact that it's extremely easy for somebody sitting in their little cottage in the Cotswolds or wherever it may be to just become disengaged with the big project that the company represents. So what makes the business work in the normal course of things is the fact that everybody comes in and they're engaged with each other and they get the feel for, you know, why the company's there, what's its purpose in life like the, you know, sort of, it's like having a sort of totem pole in the village green. Everybody hangs their hat on it, says, this is us, and this is why we're here and how we're going. I think the problem you face is that if you're sitting in your um, country cottage, wherever it may be, there's this risk that you just lose that sense of focus. And so you perhaps go and plant a few bulbs instead of getting on with the, the report you had to write or something like that. And you just need some sense of management that keeps everybody together. And that is a that social focus. You know, you really need to bring everybody into a, a virtual group to be able to do that. Well, the squirrels have eaten all my bulbs here. <laughs> but yeah, I hear what you're saying, that that need for a kind of drumbeat of checking in and the danger of, of how long all of this goes on is something for leaders to take into account. Do you feel that there are any silver linings to what we're going through now from a sort of human behavior perspective, from you know, just drawing on your work? Is there a little positive note, silver lining you could leave us with? I think probably the big positive that's clearly beginning to emerge out, out of all this is the fact that people living in the same street are now talking to each other and getting to know each other and creating more of a sense of community. Because one of the problems we've had, I think, Increasingly over the last 50 years, as our transport systems have become more efficient and faster and allowed us to travel much further, is that our personal social network, instead of just being everybody in our village, as it once was, everybody knows everybody else, is now sort of fragmented and scattered all over the country, perhaps all over the continent or even further afield. You've got these little pockets of people that you sort of live in interstices between these little subgroups and there's no kind of unity to it. And I think what we lose with that is this sense of support, moral and social support that a whole community provides for us. So if we reconstitute our little local villages in our the street we live in, then this is going to have a very positive effect on the thing. And you know that's probably going to ramify back into the work environment because your workforce turns up every Monday morning having not really seen anybody all weekend because they don't know anybody where they live. They're not coming into work in a positive frame of mind, whereas if they're embedded in a little local community, 
they will come in with a very different sort of frame of mind on Monday morning, feeling much more contented, much more willing to get on and do whatever has to be done. Well, that takes us absolutely back to the fundamental insights behind your work on the Dunbar number, doesn't it? Yeah, I was just reflecting, actually, thinking about that last point, because this is exactly what all the great late 19th century industrialists did when they built their little, you know, people like Lord Leverhulme and Cadbury's and people, when they built their workers' villages, whether they did it deliberately or not, I don't know. But what they were trying to do, I think, or the effect they had, was build a little community of people who knew each other actually outside the factory environments and, and you know, created that sense of belonging because these were people you actually lived with. And we're not going to be able to do that. But I think it's it, the principle is exactly the same. You end up with a much more contented workforce. Well, if we're left with a, a stronger sense of belonging from this, that's one positive thing that we can all take out. Robin, thank you very much. And we will include links to Robin's research and some of the studies that he's mentioned in this conversation. But lastly, thank you from us. A pleasure. You've been listening to Thompson Harrison's podcast, Ghost Lights, where we interview Oxford academics, leadership practitioners, and business experts about what it means to be human in a fast-moving, complex environment. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.